Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I've been looking to Dante's Divine Comedy for answers over the past few months. Never before has the notion of a man being lost in a dark wood been a more apt metaphor for society right now. This time of contemplation, I hope, will be the beginning of us creating new and stronger roots as a community, helping each other through difficult times, allowing our stories to intertwine through the objects we adorn ourselves with. The Roots Collection is an invitation to do just this. Head to the Alighieri Jewelry Instagram to watch the collection unfold. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most incredible artists working in the world right now, the brilliant Toyin Oji Odotola. Working exclusively in drawing materials, including pen, pastel, charcoal and chalk, the Nigerian-born and New York-based artist is known for her astoundingly beautiful, electric-like and meticulously rendered figurative works. Based on imaginary characters who inhabit opulent interiors and verdant landscapes, Oji Odotola's work can be exclusively monochrome or drenched in dazzling colours. With her starting point being not the pen, but rather her mind, she begins each series by creating narratives that play out through a series of works that suggest the structure of episodes or chapters in their cinematic-like ways. As viewers, these sometimes immersive series leave you physically and psychologically transported into other worlds as they probe questions about the state of our current world through their presentations of alternative histories, with the artist herself joining the story as she takes up fictional roles, including a private secretary or the director of a research initiative. A 2017 exhibition, To Wonder Determined at the Whitney Museum in New York, which I was lucky enough to witness, presented an interconnected series of fictional portraits chronicling the lives of two aristocratic Nigerian families. And her most recent exhibition, A Countervailing Theory at London's Barbican Centre, tells the story of an ancient civilization ruled by female warriors, the Eshu, and served by male labourers, the Koba. 
Referencing ancient history, popular culture, anime fan fiction, and contemporary politics, Toyin is reinterpreting the artistic landscape like no other. By playing with traditions of portraiture, she is pushing the genre beyond its roots into the realm to the psychological, the speculative, and the seemingly impossible. And it is her most recent exhibition, A Countervailing Theory, which features a staggering cycle of 40 new large-scale drawings that explore the complexities of our system and challenge established norms. Toyin Oji Odotola, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm good. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and welcome to London. Um, I'm so sorry about the terrible weather. <laughs> this show, A Countervailing Theory, has just taken the city by storm. I mean, like to want to determine 2017, which I purposefully, of course, went all the way to New York, especially to see. I don't think I've ever been so transported into another realm and world with exhibitions as much as yours. Everything is so considered. It feels cinematic and more like stepping into a novel or a theatre to see a play. I mean, how do you want to transport your viewer when they are confronted with your work? I guess I want to be transported too. Yeah. So I guess I, I'm thinking about, I mean, this sounds incredibly narcissistic. It's not meant to be. <laughs> but it's like I, I want to be transported too. So the person that I have to convince in my studio is me all the time. I do think about audience. I think about audience engagement a lot. And I think the activity of viewership is very important. I think engaging with the picture instead of just having it tell you something I think is really fruitful and so for me I try to push that in the studio it's like well what is my expectations about this picture how do I disrupt that what is beauty for me mm. in this how do I disrupt that and how do I also make myself uncomfortable yeah and so in that it does help build the world and it helps it become more enriching and more I guess you know you said considered it is considered because all of those details are constantly being battled in my head as yeah. I'm working so I hope that when people come in, they see the consideration that's put into it because I want them to escape, but yeah. not escape in the sense of, oh, this is a nice entertainment for you. Mm -hmm. I'm more about escaping into their own proclivities about what they think about the world and how they engage with it and certain perspectives of seeing, which they might not have the luxury to do in their everyday lives because that's the gift of art. It gives you time to think. A little bit. Totally. I, I love the idea. And I'm, I've read that you are an encyclopedic and expansive thinker. That's a lie. <laughs> That's a total lie. I don't know who's telling you these things. I think Zadie Smith wrote that. Maybe. Oh, she's too sweet. <laughs> but, but I love this idea of kind of transforming the self. It, it's something that constantly manifests itself variously in your work. I mean, what is it about sort of transformation that you mm. are interested in in your work? I think I find stayed and true definitions or forms or again it goes back to the word expectations I find them very dull I think certainty is something that is imposed because people need something to move forward but what's the problem with something that's stayed and true is that it doesn't give you any room to try anything so even if you might believe a certain principle or you might think that you're a certain kind of person transformation is a means of saying oh you know it's like a gateway to empathy it's a gateway to thinking about different ideas. And art for me is such a transformative practice. And so I like to use it as a means to meditate, to think, and to really consider ideas that I might not like, that I might disagree with. I mean, a lot of the work in the show at the Barbican right now, there's a lot of points and ideas that are in this show that I don't like, mm. that made me very uncomfortable. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or wrong. It's just something that helps me be more active yeah. participant in the yeah. world. And it is a picture. It's an illusion. I get it. But if I can just suspend your disbelief for even a moment and have you kind of get out of yourself, I think I've succeeded. And so that's that transformative can be a tool yeah. you can use in the work. Totally. I mean, just as a viewer, as a sort of punter, I think I just get transformed to other worlds. I mean, like I said in the introduction, I can go into a gallery and I can see pictures and they those pictures represent something. But yours, it goes so much further. It is like mm. literally being lost in a book or something. I mean, yeah. I mentioned the introduction, the sort of pen comes first in terms of the mind. I mean, when did you become interested in storytelling and how does that come first with your work? It was really something I came late to, actually. Really? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I guess when I graduated from grad school, so I was like 2012, yeah. there was still that reticent legacy of identity art, you know, that came in from the early 90s. Yeah. And there was a lot of placement with artists like myself, especially in school, where no one really had the language to talk about my work. When I'm dealing with a figure, and yeah. it's the black figure, I had a lot of confused professors who, I mean, now, of course, it's, it's a completely different context. The language is there. But at the time, I mean, people were just like, I don't understand why these figures are black. You know, you, you see interviews with Toni Morrison where people say, when are you going to write about white people? I mean, that was the culture. I'm trying to give people context of how I came out of school. So I, when you're constantly having your presence be questioned and your oppression being the meaning of working, you have to draw it out. You have to figure out why this is so. So a lot of my early works were very identity art based. Yeah. So it's very much like decontextualized figures in yeah. spaces. And the only tool that was readily available to me at the time was pen ink. And so didn't have a lot of money. Pen ink is everywhere. It's really cheap. <laughs> I would use it just to sketch out ideas. But then it became this tool that was very interesting to me because in the marks I was making, they felt very literal. Yeah, It felt like a language. And I used that as my thesis. I said, okay, well, why do I draw this way? Why are the sinews like that? Why do they look like muscles? You yeah. know, that was the whole thing. I don't know why. I just know <laughs> I was drawing like that. And I remember writing in my thesis that, you know, the pen tool is by default a writing tool first. So maybe I'm trying to use it in that way through drawing. And windy roads with different materials to now, storytelling came into the fore and I think storytelling was always there but I just I was so distracted by the fact that my otherness was the read of my work that I wanted to combat that in my work but it just made it all the more othering to yeah. people and I finally just embraced it I was like it's not my concern to educate you on the very rich and full of history that the black aesthetic is and that's something you have to educate yourself on yeah what I'm doing is trying to make interesting pictures now and Part of that is now in the realm of storytelling. And storytelling also frees me up from any kind of biographical obfuscation. It frees me up from people saying, wow, this is so cool, you're like a black person. And it's like, wow, that's all you think about. When you see this, that's really limiting. But it's sad that that does happen. And I'm always trying to push against that, but I push it against it in my own way. And I want people to come into the Barbican or even the show at the Whitney at the time and enter a story and forget about the fact that there are black figures. Yes, black figures are there, but they are catalysts for the story. They're not the final point. It's so dull to keep saying this over and over. <laughs> but I think it's because my otherness is still predominant in the world. You know, it's very rare to see in the black, well, in art historical canon in general, black figures who aren't there for the purpose of whiteness. I think that makes people very uncomfortable. And 
I used to be very concerned about this. And I was always reaching out to say like, yeah, we're people and we have stories and there's a lot here. And now I just don't care anymore. If you don't see the stories, that's really your loss yeah. because there's so much there. And it's the same with people who, when Toni Morrison would say, if you only see me as a black woman writer as a limitation, that really is your loss because her stories are incredible. So that's how I, I feel about it. But it was something that I had to come to late. Yeah. Storytelling was something that really freed me. And I, I love telling stories. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, it's like, being at a theatre or something, they're mm. characters and it's, I don't know, I always imagine kind of dialogue within them. I just went back into the show again and I went on the first day it opened, oh, wow. <laughs> of course, and just having a month break from it, reading up about it. And I'm like, oh my God, these characters are actually speaking to each mm -hmm. other. You could write a play about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, the research involved, child. I mean, it, that was part of it too. Actually, after the Whitney, one thing that I was very concerned about moving forward was I wanted to see characters doing something. Yeah. I was very concerned about the posing black beauty. I've been talking about this a lot recently as well. It, it's something that is very predominant now, I think, in the Black Lives Matter as you know resurgence that we have, but also just in culture. People are saying, oh, yes, we forgot black people exist. Let's put them in nice, pretty settings and wearing really nice things. Most of it is for consumption, right? Most of it is for capitalistic gain. But the image is very powerful because it's so new to people. I find it a little bit suspicious. And I was also someone who partook in it yeah. <laughs> back in 2017 and for a while, actually, for that whole series. And I just thought, okay, it's really concerning to me that every picture I'm seeing, no one's doing anything. They're just kind of looking at you and they're very composed beautifully but there's no agency in the picture so I knew moving forward with the Barbican show that every picture had to have a purpose they had to be doing something that action had to be taking place because then it's no longer about someone just being like a statue for you to consume and to judge or whatever but they're an active participant in the story that they're telling it's not just me that's creating this it's like they can be autonomous once I leave the room so that's where I'm at with storytelling. It's like it's less about pretty yeah, and more about the doing activity. And because in that, then you as a viewer are seeing something that leads you to another thing. It's not just a static image. Yeah. And I think what's beautiful about a Barbican show is that you revisit characters. Exactly. So it's like the first image is kind of the making of him at first. Mm. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, but wait, you can tell the difference from their heads. Yeah. And you suddenly realize that kind of halfway through as well. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for. And you're like, oh, well, who are they mm. and why are they in that position? Yeah. But I'm fascinated this idea of storytelling. I mean... It's so interesting. Again, watching you and Zadie in conversation is always amazing because it's like <laughs> two writers and you're just like, wow, this is incredible. And where do these ideas for stories come from? Oh, that's a really good question. It's funny. I read a lot in, as a kid. Yeah. I wasn't a particularly illustrative student. I had a mouth on me. I loved stories. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, not good for authority figures. But <laughs> the only two things would calm me down to my parents. Well, three. One was watching a movie reading a book or drawing, that was it. And so they promote that as much as possible because <laughs> I was a lot, to, I was a handful. So a lot of stories were exposed to me because my father liked like Bollywood movies and yeah. my mom would watch Nollywood movies. <laughs> and I would also just watch like all kinds of things like anime, Disney films, and as I got older, all kinds of weird, like French New Wave and then like African cinema of the 1960s and 70s. So wow. I was constantly yeah. like consuming and I didn't really think I was a storyteller. I really didn't. I just loved things that made me 
this is going to sound so weird. Like, I get bored very easily. Yeah. So, like, too. if a story is, like, I know where it's going, I'm like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> like, I'll be in a theater or even when I'm reading a book, I'm like, oh, don't do this. Like, I already know where this is going. <laughs> and so, for me, like, the ideas come when, I, I love that Octavia Butler quote where she watches a film and she said it was so bad. She thought, I can rewrite this better. That's kind of where my ideas come from. It's from other stories. I'll just read something and I'm like, well, why did they just do that instead? Yeah. And what would that look like? And it leads to something greater and greater. And then it builds. And with the Barbican show, the story was in me since I was like 19, I think. Wow. After reading a lot of Octavia Butler. <laughs> and I love her. I have her tattooed on my hand. I say oh, it all the wow. time. She's like the greatest of all time. I have James Baldwin over here, too. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm a total dork. <laughs> but yeah, I started thinking, OK, what was this story about one person who's made and one person who's born? And that became the thread and that stayed in my head for a few years and then it, get, it got into more elaborate things like what if it was all women's society yeah. and then it, you know it, years and years built and then finally an opportunity presents itself in an exhibition and then you're like oh great <laughs> now I really have to figure out what I want to talk about and what ideas do I want to tackle because I don't just go into storytelling thinking oh I'm telling you a story because it's cool I actually want to ask myself questions in that so part of the ruse of being I don't know, what am I, archaeologist now? So I'm an archaeologist <laughs> or a private secretary. Is for me to remove my own proclivities of what I expect the story to be and suspend my own disbelief because then I can challenge a lot of the ideas I'm trying to tackle in the story. So I'm interested in a lot of different things, and I like to collate them into these stories. And I want them to be present in the pictures as subtly as I can, but I want them to be inviting so that an audience member can engage in it and also ask their own questions like I do when I'm consuming art yeah. and think, oh, well, what if they tried that? Great. Why don't you go into that in your head and yeah. see where that leads you? Because I think part of the problem was in like Ursula Le Guin said, if you don't practice your imagination, you can't have a dialogue with someone. Yeah. You know, like right now, everyone's talking about we're so divided. Well, part of the problem is <laughs> no one is actually thinking about something else. They're only thinking from their own perspective. And what I, the gift of art making for me is that it allows me to think in a variety of perspectives. I'm constantly thinking about different points of view. If I say like, oh, this is so, I'm like, well, that could also be so. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Equally. Yeah. And because of that, it's given me the perspective to kind of step away from myself and, and engage with issues in a really layered and deep way so that when I come out on the other side, I know that I've given it the proper thought that it requires. And I hope that when people go through the show, they feel that too. They can come in and say, oh, wow, all these women control men. Cool. <laughs> but that's a superficial layer. Yeah. And when you really get into it, you're like, why are they controlling them? Why do they act the way they do? Why are the men naked and the women are clothed? You know, there there's certain things that I hope people question because it makes you realize that the world that you live in is about perspective and it's about you having the wherewithal to understand that your perspective is just one in a large tapestry and if you keep thinking that that's the only way to see the world we're in trouble which we are in now and that was when my mind when I was making this show is that there was just so much singularity of vision that no one could see beyond that and it's sad and scary too yeah Absolutely. But I mean, like I said, I've been twice, but every time as well, just as a participant, the story is constantly unfolding. So next Absolutely. time I go, because it is a visual story in a way and the storyboard mm. and you do give us, well, you don't, you kind of give everything away at the end almost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, right. I, 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 
and the sort of first image you're quite okay what's going on here and and I had that with the Whitney show as well as all these beautiful stunning portraits but there's more to this and mm. as like a not historian the best part of my job is literally projecting and I probably do it far too much as project <laughs> stories under paintings and everything yeah. but it is so much like part of the fun and yeah. when someone presents you with 40 canvases <laughs> that's when it gets yeah. really fun I love it I mean isn't it fun when narrative is involved I think yeah I don't completely. know I, I, I right I find s the static picture so scary because I think people like something to be tidied up yeah, and contained. Yeah, they do. Packaged. Right. And it, it doesn't leave room for ambiguity or opacity or any of those things that are very real, but also make the picture so much more interesting. Yeah. And so the luxury, I mean, luxury now. <laughs> it wasn't a luxury when I got the, the thing at the time, but a 90 meter expanse yep. of a wall <laughs> is that I had the room to play the story out slowly. Whereas in the Whitney's you saw with the space, I think there was only about 18 pictures in there. So yeah. You know, you can only do so much was highly concentrated in, yeah. in an episodic way. So it was contained. But in this, I could really play. There were certain pictures where I was like, I don't have to make it nicely summed up. Because yeah. there's another picture coming that's going to lead you to a next thing. Yeah. So I'm not so much concerned about pictorially having, you know, as they say, I don't want to flex all the time. Yeah. It's not about me like saying, oh, look at how good I am at drawing pictures. It's more about how good am I at leading you to the next thing. Yeah. That became the skill I had to hone. And that was not easy because it's a very <laughs> linear story. So I have to make sure that it fits. I love that kind of interaction that people get when they see the narrative because then they do inject their own ideas into it and they do bring in their own personal experiences. And I, I like that. I'm a little bit reticent to even talk about it. I mean, there's a framework I want to give you. But then I'm also like, well, if you think it's that, then you think it's that. Yeah. That's, I think that's much more interesting than whatever I might tell you it is. I love that people react that way. I think narrative helps people see better. Because I think when there's a story involved, you're less inclined to say, well, I already know what it says. Mm. Because a story is like, you know, it's over a campfire. It's like, you, well, what are you trying to tell me? Mm. Like, wait for it. <laughs> Just keep going. It's coming. That's what this show is, you know. Yeah. But it's so interesting. I mean, if you think going back to 400 years ago in art history or somewhere, I don't know if you've been to the Artemisia Gentileschi exhibition at the oh, National Gallery. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. And it's really brought up this idea of storytelling and then seeing your work. It's just so interesting, these stories 400 years apart, but also kind of timeless in a way and how mm. people in the sort of 1620s were recreating Judith and Holofernes, but yeah. she was also altering the story herself. So it's from a sort of feminist perspective. Mm. And it's so fascinating that, in a way, art history has completely always been rooted in those stories. It's like the Disney movies now. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, why do we need another Aladdin? I'm like, they've been doing it in art history for generations. <laughs> I mean, the oldest story, I think, is mythology, right? Yeah. Like, that's history. Yeah. And that was what I really wanted to engage with. I was telling Lottie, I was like, I mean, what is a myth? I think yeah. that was like one of the first questions I asked her. And we both kind of looked at each other like, you know, what really, what is that? Let's mine that word. And in the research, I thought, well, a myth is everything that someone who conquered something created, or it's just something that someone just made up. And yeah. it was interesting enough that people latched onto it. And the then Bible. It <laughs> right. And it permutated, right. And it became so many different things in different contexts. So I just kept thinking to myself, like, all right. I'm still discovering Nigeria and the mythology of Nigeria. And so much of the language around it is colonialist and it's tainted by that. And so I'm like, no, I want to create my own Nigeria. And I think, what if the history, you know, it's such a patriarchal society, but what if our history is actually matriarchal? Like, what would that be? And the earliest civilization I could find was a Noke. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to predate this. Let me go earlier than them and create this story and completely remove color so that I'm only working on a linear linguistic way 
in a textural way. And I felt like I was mining a history that was my own, but it also was something that was ancestral. It felt like something that was beyond me. And so in the end of it, I felt like, oh, look, I just created a story. It was like <laughs> Ulysses or something crazy. And I remember someone asked, oh, maybe I read somewhere, unfortunately, in a review, where they said, like, why Nigeria? And I'm like, it's hilarious to ask that question. Because why would you ask James Joyce why he talks about Ireland all the time? Yeah. Or Dublin? You know, there's a lot of things I want to explore there. And I think there's a lot of stories that are coming out of Nigeria that aren't just in the land, but in the land of the metaphysical, in the land of history, in the land of our imaginations. And that's what I wanted to tap into in this story. And I hope that I did, but I don't know. Everyone's getting a different response to the show. <laughs> but for me, storytelling is like, when you say with Artemisia, it's not about me reacting to something that's happened before. I had to completely invent it myself. But I'm also pulling from ideas that I know I've been exposed to that I may not like about myself. There's a lot of blind spots in the show that I'm noticing now that I'm seeing it. Yeah. But it was all part of me learning about how to create a myth and what comes into that and what is required of that. And from that now, what happens? Like, what are people going to take with it? I hope people take from it and create their own and then it permutates and it yeah. becomes its or own Or people thing. might even reinterpret it themselves through exactly. other mediums. Exactly. And, and make it their own. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not mine now. It's everybody's. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like the detailed narratives, <laughs> something that... Again, when I, I think I first saw your work probably on Instagram, sadly, but then obviously like raced to New York to it. see it. It's, 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 it's everywhere now. It's like the whole thing is Instagram. <laughs> but the mark making of your work is so incredibly meticulous. Although the works might at first seem quite painterly, they're actually drawing and there mm. you use charcoal, chalk, pastel and pen. I mean, why are you drawn to working with this medium in particular? I think it's easy to, to work with for me. It's messier, though. I wish I was a painter. I really do. Really? I Why? really wish I was a painter because, God, if you saw my studio floor, it's, <laughs> it's just not worth it. Dry media gets everywhere. But no, I, I think I like the immediacy of the mark, you know? I say that now because I know that there's painters who do that too. There's like a lot of painters I admire, like uh, Jennifer Packer, yeah. whose show's coming up in Serpentine. Yeah. Right? She's a really dear friend of mine. I love her painterly mark and I find it to be very immediate. I can't do that. <laughs> and drawing is a really great layering application. Not that painting isn't, but for me it is. And I like to mix a lot of different materials. But I think with drawing, there's something about it being like the earliest form or the most immediate form of communication. You know, when you're trying to ask someone for directions, you draw it out. If you're, you know, want to jot down a note, right? The writing is still a form of drawing and symbology. But I, I also know that eventually I do get bored with my marks a lot. And I don't know if you've seen with different series, it gets more and more layered. Like sometimes when I look at the marks in these and I'm like, oh girl, <laughs> you're trying so hard to render your mark unfamiliar to yourself. And I think that's what I like about drawing is that I can always play with it and, and push it in a way that I don't even know where it's going. And I like that. I like that I'm uncertain about the mark. Yeah, I mean, what I'm always so in awe of, how your works range sort of stylistically so much. So for example, like To Wonder Determined was drenched in this <laughs> like I literally say drenched in color yeah. because it was it was just poured on it was amazing polychromatic the, spree yes yeah. and I love how that can be its own narrative because it's in color and then you get to somewhere like counterfeiting theory and 
it's completely in monochrome. I mean, mm. first of all, how do you decide on this? And kind of what is the effect on working with these two very contrasting... Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know it's you because of the mark making, but yeah. it's, it's so different. Yeah, I mean, I like to... This is going to sound so weird. <laughs> I, I get it back to that being bored. Yeah. I get so bored. Because I think especially with art, I mean, you know, now with the art market more than the art world dictates a lot of how artists, unfortunately, are working in the studio. And I think there's a lot of pressure and emphasis on artists having a style. Yeah. Right. And having a brand and having that be consistent and just changing it slightly every couple of years. I can't do that. I, I think after even a year, I'm like, get me out of this. Like, yeah. I need to do something else. After the Whitney show, I think even, because I did it for three years, and that was, a, I mean, girl, three years of doing that. But by 2018, I knew I was not touching color in that way at all. Wow. I just knew I had to get the hell out of there. And, you know, I was in a place, and I had to get out of that place. I'm reticent to say the word restrict or limit, because it wasn't limiting to me working monochromatically. I just thought, okay, I just want to work in another medium. I want to work in another way. And that's what it is for me. Now I'm sick of the monochrome. <laughs> and now I'm back in, in the color. But then I'm also interested in like muted colors now and like how do I make them interesting. And it's a challenge that I want to, I, I put on myself. I don't know if it's a, for healthy. But I like playing with that and I like pushing myself. And I discover so much in doing it. That's the thing. And now I'm working on something else and I'm, I'm learning. And it, it takes me a while, but, and there's moments where I'm like, why do I do this? Like I could just do the easy thing and just go back to making the drawings that I did back in 2017. But I know in my heart, I wouldn't allow it. Even if you don't like it, even if it's a challenge, even if it's difficult, which it was for me making this show, I was so happy I did it. Yeah. Because I, I wanted to push what I thought I was capable of doing. But I know that if I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, I'm going to get stuck. Yeah. And my hand will get, what I like to say, gets comfortable. Yeah. And I don't like to be comfortable all the way. I want to be surprised. Yeah. Like, I, I want to like have a moment where I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and that leads to something else, you know. Instead of being really comfortable, maybe it's this idea of, like, not wanting to be completely satiated. Yeah. I think that's what it is or where it comes from. And I, I, my mom always jokes with me. He's like, you're trying to surprise nine-year-old Toyin. Because I was that, that was literally that kid that adults hated. Because every time they would say something, I was like, and? <laughs> like, they'd explain something to me, and I'm like, and? That's all? That's all you got? Oh, my God. You got to do better than that. My parents were like, we cannot help it. Like, she's just, like, teachers would tell me, like, well, that's the way it is. And I'm like, Really? <laughs> That's how it is, oh really? God. Oh my God. So I was you're the just worst. constantly trying to impress her, basically. Uh, basically. She was just so unimpressed with the world, you know? She was so jaded at nine. And I'm like always looking at her, like, damn it. I gotta figure out something to keep her on her toes. But no, I think that's what it comes from. Yeah. And it's a driving force in me that I really, I, I don't wanna take that away. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're here at the Barbican today, and you've just kind of come out of quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Welcome to the real life. Again. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, the word is so rubbish. Um, <laughs> how does it feel seeing, being in that space and seeing it all come together? If I'm being real, there's a lot of complicated emotions. I think there's a lot because of the context of how we're seeing it. You know, it's a pandemic, Black Lives Matter, I mentioned earlier, the Breonna Taylor thing. I actually found out about this very recently because I had my news app like deleted from my phone. So like all of these stories are happening and 
I felt really guilty, if I'm being very honest with you, going into the space when I met with Lottie. Like, because that was the day I found out about it. Because I hadn't known. I wasn't looking at news. And then the whole thing just made me very angry and very hurt. And then I walked into the space and I felt okay at first. I think I was just kind of like... Because it was such a massive thing, you know? It's like you get into that space and you feel it. You feel like the... Like you're entering some kind of tomb or something. Yeah. But then there were certain pieces that really got to me emotionally because of just I remembered what I was going through when I was making them. But I also just felt like, God, you know, is this story important right now? Like, is this helping people? And luckily, we got to see it again because we went back in after. And I saw people looking at it. And I saw how happy they were. And I saw how engaged they were. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. Like, there's something. There's like a respite for people because I needed it too. And I got it being there. Because you get really angry right now. Like, there's a lot of anger. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff in there that's not comfortable. It's not meant to be like entertainment, like I said earlier. But it, it's something that just gets people out of that anger and helps them just think about the world. And it's a safe space to do it, you know? It's a quiet place to do it well quiet in the sense of like <laughs> they can really just be with their thoughts there's a lot of pride obviously I'm very proud of the show and what everyone here at the barbecue and all the staff that helped us put it up they did an incredible job because it's a lot to do it across a, a pond yeah I do want that like 20 centimeters to the left oh. I know you're looking at me like yeah. I'm crazy through the screen but everything has a purpose here and to see it was so overwhelming and I just, I feel a lot of mixed emotions. I feel like, why am I here? Why do I have a right to be here? And there's so many people who don't have this luxury. And I take that very seriously. And then there's also a part of me that's like, I worked very hard because I want people here in London are able to see that there's different ways of making art, different ways of engaging in art, different ways of seeing the world. And I hope that they take that with them. Yeah. So there's a lot of conflicting emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And the experience of going through it, it's interesting you say like, you know, entering a tomb or something because yeah. it is this otherworldly yeah. experience. I mean, did you think about the experience of the visitor sort of going through the curve? First time I visited the curve, it was nothing <laughs> on the walls either. Um, we were, I think we were walking through it a couple of times. I came in to visit and the first time I saw it was the best time because there was no work up. Oh, wow. And they were doing a renovation. And I just walked the span of it. And we walked it backwards. We didn't walk it from the front. And I'd never seen the space. And I was like, wait, where does it go? You know, so we kept walking and walking. I'm like, no worries, where does it go? <laughs> like, it was just like kept happening. And I was like, she's like, no, 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 we're, we're getting there. I'm like, no, no, I'm scared. Like, I don't know what's coming, which was the best ex way to experience it. Because then I'm like, oh, I want to replicate this. Because by the time we got to the end, I was like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do here. So that's what I wanted for the viewer. Like, wait, what is coming? Like, yeah. are they... Is everything okay? Like, it's like carrying like, on, carrying exactly. on. Like, where am I? Like, do I end? There, you know? <laughs> and so there's certain beats that I would try to like get the audience to get into. And but yeah, that first experience just cemented it for me. It was like, I have to show here. Because it, it again, it was going to challenge my way of working linearly. Yeah. And trying to expand upon this parable in such a way that <laughs> would fill the whole space. But would want to move through it. Would keep you engaged enough. So, yeah. Absolutely. And so the f I mentioned this earlier, but the first work is mm -hmm. we meet one of the Cobras. This is such a beautiful work and is su oh, I, I only realise 
it's significance in a way kind of going back and I saw when I first felt I went back as a lot of people are saying that I was like yeah you're not supposed to do that but I'm like whatever it's fine like my friend literally told me she was like I walked all the way back I was like I needed to figure out what the hell I just saw I was like okay fair enough it's amazing because you're like well why am I seeing the back of this person and what's about to happen and I don't know I'm that kind of person I just love to I love that I love that but tell us about this first work I mean was that the first work that you created for this project it was I think and you can tell which ones in the shower are the early ones <laughs> the ones that have eyebrows and the ones that don't oh my god <laughs> um, i have not noticed like that. midway into it i was like they're not getting eyebrows too late now <laughs> but um no it was a uh, i thought about what is your first memory and as a person and it's always a feeling it's the feeling of yourself being aware of your body and being aware of your surroundings and in this world, the bodies that exist affect their landscape, affect their surroundings. So you see his metaphysical awareness come into being and his shadow. Shadows in this series are very important. They represent the essence of a person, their thoughts, their ideas, their being, their soul. So you're seeing in this picture the formulation of his soul. And so that's the very first memory he has. And how do you capture that, you know what I mean, in a yeah. picture? And so there's a lot of texture play. And I wasn't sure what the visual language of the show would be yet. So I, there's a lot of things in there that didn't make it to the end. But I love that picture, too, because I think it it was when I really fully immersed myself in this world, in that picture. And I was like, okay, just go ham. Just go. Don't have fear of what it might signify yet. Just sit in that. Do these marks what marks come to mind, let your hand kind of guide you. And that's what happened. Yeah, I love how it's a kind of linearity of line as well. I mean, my favourite work is Mating Ritual and it kind of stands in the centre. So for those who haven't been yet, it's these 40 works that encompass the entirety of the 90 metre long curve and they're all at different heights and you're just completely immersed it's literally like kind of watching different images from a play almost mm. and this middle work is called mating ritual mm. and it's like these i guess three cobras and yeah. they're kind of moving they're sort of crouching it's as though they're they're crunking yeah they're having a good old time <laughs> they're feeling their bodies i wanted to have two images one was acclimation and placement and that one where it was like they're fully cognizant of their bodies yeah. and they're fully cognizant of their place and so now they're just trying to feel it out and trying to understand it. Again, because they, they don't have youth. You know, the Eshu have youth. So they get that as children. Yeah. But the Koba don't have that. They're wow, manufactured, yes. right? So they're still discovering, like a child would, how their arms work and how their limbs work. Oh, wow. And so how do you capture that? And through dance in Africa, that's such a, well, in Nigeria, I don't know about the rest of the country, but Africa, if you can imagine, is, there's a lot of rhythm and there's a lot of movement of the body is very important. And so I thought, how do I use that as an education for them? And I also wanted to be coy about it and say like mating ritual, because that's also how you discover people, right? You see how someone else moves and you like how they move. Yeah. And then you're attracted to them and there's a relationship that's formed. If you want to see equivalent of mating ritual, it is unsupervised education. That's the compatibility there, the parallels. But because the Koba are adults, we see them as adult beings. Yeah. Even though mentally they're children, they're adolescents. But they're discovering themselves and they're moving around. And I like that picture. It was strange to draw because it's a triptych. And there were moments where it was going to be just a diptych. Because <laughs> I was like, there was one figure I was like, I don't know if I want the balls to show. <laughs> that was the decision I had to make was to include the balls. And then I realized that I was like, you know what? They're not going to have any external genitalia. Let's just take that all out. 
That's a whole nother conversation. But I, I love that picture because it shows the one moment of freedom that they have to be themselves and to discover themselves. So, yeah, it's a really beautiful work. And a lot of different texture play there, too. Yeah, the well. muscles on it. And it, it, the whole thing is just dancing in itself. And then I should add that Peter Ajay's made this beautiful soundscape for mm. it. So you're just following it along. And yeah. the way that they're turning, I mean, that work for me just sort of centred everything. And mm. and also it's up high and you just your, your eye is just kind of drawn through the mark making the entire time. And oh, I love that. And thank you so much. I mean, like, it, that was early on, too. That was early on in the process of making the show. So a lot of the pieces, I mean, I think roughly... The the show is chronological in terms of how it's made, actually. But most of them are made in the order that the st- as you experience them. So I was discovering it <laughs> as you were. But yeah, like that whole moment, especially with the piece above it, the courtship piece, which is when Aldo and Treyek find each other. And it's also a mating ritual as well. But it's Treyek is a bit more reticent and he's in the ground and he's like nervous. But Aldo is like fully embracing his body and letting it just be free. And I really love that one as well. Yeah. So just to kind of give some people some context, sort of as we walk throughout the all-encompassing exhibition, the narrative unfolds. I love how you and Zadie Smith both describe it as unfolding like a Chinese scroll. Yeah. And as viewers, we witness a tale of forbidden love and follow Ankake, who's an Eshu, and Aldo, a Koba, who begin an illicit affair and conceive a pair of twins, an act that does not go unpunished. Addis is criminal for the Eshu and the Koba to form emotional or physical bonds with one another. This is a place where homosexuality is the norm and heterosexuality is abhorred. I mean, what were your thinkings behind sort of flipping the script as something that's mentioned sort of throughout? I don't understand why not. Mm. I mean, I I think that any society can be either one. You know, like, it's so funny when people mention that. It's like, oh, wow, they're all gay? Well, why not? It's not that shocker. I mean, I'm like, it's it's just another way of living your life and being and existing and, and loving. The flipping of the script actually for me was much more insidious than that because that again that's part of the ruse if someone were to come in and say like oh it's all women's society oh everyone's gay you're really getting distracted with representation representation isn't enough if you're really asking the question as i hope and then zadie so brilliantly said in the essay in the catalog was who's the oppressor that's the question and do you side with the oppressor simply because they look like you Because there's so much of, and I had to deal with this question too, because when you're subjugated or you're oppressed as a person in society, you think that you are fighting towards equality, you cannot be an oppressor. You cannot treat someone in that way. And that's a lie. Anyone can be an oppressor, regardless of whether they're subjugated or not. The question I was trying to get at was, if the issue genuinely believe that they're a source of good in the world, did that influence you as the viewer when you see them? Because you see what happens when Akanke and Aldo get together and how they're treated. You also see what happens that forces Aldo to be falsely accused because Akoba, who has been oppressed, fights back in a very violent way, which is also wrong, but you understand where that's coming from too. There are systems in place that are dictating these actions. They're not existing in a vacuum. And so when I, I hear people talk about utopias or they talk about an all-woman society, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to ask, what difference does it make? Because if you are fighting for equality, you have to genuinely want equality for everyone. You can't just be particularly picking bits and pieces of it that's convenient for you. And that's the problem we're having right now. Everyone thinks that it's really convenient 
to just say, like, put a black person here, but don't give them any mobility to move through that position. Like, power is very corrupting, and it's very heady, and people get caught up in it. I'm not interested in power over people. I'm interested in power as a collective. But no one thinks that way. And so I decided to do a show about it, and I wanted to see if people caught on. So far, some did. Not everybody yet. And I and it's fine, but I think that if you're going to look at society and think, I should be the ruler, I should, that's a very egoic and very reductive way of looking at things. Because if you really want to emancipate us from the shit show that we're in, you have to think about everyone all the time. Like, and no one wants to do that. No one wants to do that work. And that's what I had to do to make this work, which is exhausting. But I, I understand, but that's the emancipatory work. That's a collective healing work. And what Akanke and Aldo do is transgress a system that forces them not to think that way. They're thinking about the other, and they're not meant to. And they're punished for it. But in that, something beautiful comes out of it, where they give birth, quite literally, in this parable, but I meant in the idea that they give birth to a multifocal, a multisensorial, and a multi-experiential, if I don't know if that's a word, way of seeing the world. And they don't get to see that promised land, but they're commemorated for it because they're the ones who usher it in. And I think a lot of people get caught up in our time and thinking they want to be in the forefront of things and there's FOMO and all the rest of it. But sometimes you have to realize that you're just a stepping stone for someone else. You might not make it. So that got really dark. I don't know why. I'm just saying that like, I don't want people to just get caught up in the tensions and the struggles that Akanke and Aldo and the Eshu and the Koba go through because what really I was hoping that people got out of it was it's not about you. It's not just about you, you know? And they saw that. Their love was what they realized. It's not just about them. And in that, something actually quite beautiful happened, even though it is a little tragic. But... Sometimes you have to let go of that ego and see that there's other people who are suffering and there's other people who have ideas. And you have to consider them, even if you don't like them. But if we do consider them, there is a means of finally getting some peace. I don't know, maybe that's a very naive thought, but I'm, I'm just thinking that way. No, not at all, and thank you for that. I think mm. you put it brilliantly. <laughs> um, <laughs> how do you want people to leave this exhibition then? With the text of the it. <laughs> That text was, I mean, it's a fiction too, but uh, it brings it to our world, you know. You, you're in the parable, and it's a nice escape. And then you see that, you read that text, which, child, the amount of times I had to write drafts for that text, because I had to make it so deadpan, and so, and thankfully I, I'm the daughter of a scientist, so I know this writing style very well. I get these texts from my father all the time. But I had to make it seem like this is quite real. It, it's a bridge to our world. There are Chinese investment companies mining in Nigeria right now. There is a political unrest that is caused from this capitalistic interventions that are mostly from foreign extraction, which is very storied in my country. And, you know, people have gone through that text and say, oh, I don't like it. Why wasn't this in the front of the exhibition? It's like, no. Because if it was, you wouldn't pay attention to it. Yeah. You wouldn't realize that this is actually... This is our world now. Yes, this is a, not real, but you leave that exhibition knowing that you carry it with you into the world because it does exist. 
and no one cares about the people who live there because they're trying to make them fight to kill each other right now so they can extract. And so the setting was chosen for a purpose. It's not just pretty pictures. At least I hope that people look up Jos Plateau and see what's going on there right now and see that it should be protected the way Stonehenge is protected yeah. here. But it's not because everyone is trying to invest money in trying to extract stuff out of it. But I hope that all of these things are in the show. They're there for you to mine and to take from. And I don't want it to be Debbie Downer here. <laughs> I also want you to escape, too. And I just want to give young kids options to see how they can tell a story, too. And I hope that they get all of that. And I've been hearing a lot of young people have been coming to the show, which makes me very happy. I just want people to know that I'm not just coming in here with some, like, frivolous shit. Like, I'm really considering some deeply problematic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have to also ask you about your incredible portrait of Zadie Smith. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you did. Yeah. You, you asked me in the, in the lovely interview you did with me and Zadie earlier this year. I mean, what a gift for us to have in the UK and the world to have this. I mean, I know I asked you sort of in writing <laughs> form, but I've been dying to ask you face to face as well. Just how was it taking on this task and what did you want to portray? I mean, it's the most kind of elegant, beautiful, noble, oh, wow. just fantastic portrait. I mean, the, well, the first thing was, I mean, I love the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah. I find it a very fascinating institution. Yeah. Because I think it's, a, what, it's the very first portrait gallery in the world, supposedly. Like, oh, I, think, I didn't well, know that. I mean, you know, this is Victorian times. Everything was first <laughs> back then because it just meant that we were conquering the world as the British Empire. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> it's just a fascinating thing when you see, like, the Tudors and you see styles in different time periods. And I remember just seeing the stately portraits. It's such a genre. And when they asked me to do it, Zadie, I, I'm such a huge fan of her work and yeah. I just find her to be a really fascinating mind. Yeah. And when they asked me to do it, I was very emotional because I was like, how do I engage with this woman who I know <laughs> is interested in a variety of things, as you said, and also someone who is dynamic and is a part of our time, but yet it's going into this institution that is, you know, it's a colonialist institution because a part of what it, its purpose is, is to show this, again, this stately portrait, all of these very important people. And these very important people tend to look very similar and tend to come from the same class and tend to come from the same educational background. Zadie is none of those things. I'm none of those things. And so how do we engage with that? And so I thought, all right, I'm going to put her in the most plain room I can, the most neutral I can. But... I want to activate it with her being in it. Like she's the element in it that activates everything else. If she wasn't in that room, the room would be nothing. And that's how I feel about this institution. It's like a mirror of that. You can't just inject JD into your collection and say, look at us, pat us on the back. Yep. No, you have to bring more Zadies in because Zadie is the gate. It's like the inclusion, inclusion writer, <laughs> as they say. She brings in everyone. It's not just her. Everyone's represented in that picture, unfortunately. But I hope that that would be like a means that more and more people can say, why aren't there women with Afros painted in this collection? Yeah. Why aren't there more women like her? Or just a different variety. Most of the pictures that are of people of color or black women in particular are photographs. Yeah. They're not paintings. Wow. I mean, you think about that yeah. and how that affects young people. That's what I was thinking about in the picture. I also wanted to flex because it's Zadie. So she's got like, you know, like a red coat. <laughs> it's insane. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, she's got her boots on. Like, I'm trying to keep it like 
styling and profiling. But at the same time, I know how important this is. And it's all in there. I mean, as you can tell by this interview, I put everything in. Yeah. And it's there if you want to look for them. You don't have to know about it. I'm just trying to let people know that if you pay attention and you listen and you look and you try to read the pictures, it's there for you. If you don't want to, you just want to pass them by, that's also your choice. And I love that picture. I really do. There's Jamaican palms in the shadows and everything because, you know, repping her mom's. The map of Kilburn, Northwest London, where she's from, all of these things. I mean, I wanted it to be hers, but I also, and it's very idiosyncratic to her, but it's also just about like, this is just a black British chick, you know, and she's cool. And all of you are her, you know, so that was, yeah. I love that, Pete. I love that. I'm really glad that it all worked out because it, <laughs> it was a bit scary. Yeah. What do you want young people to learn from her portrait? I think to learn that you really have to get out of this idea that you have to be a certain way. Yeah. You know, I was that way. I still struggle with it. I think there's this idea that we have to be a certain way because we've been taught to. Yeah. And you can't think that way. I hope that young people just see that they have options. I really do. I think with all of the pictures, that's why I do different things, different styles. I'm not one thing. Neither are you. You know, like if you are always going to be seen as a singular person, that means you can always be controlled and you can always be put down. But if you're full of all these possibilities, then who can pin you down? Nobody. So Amazing. Toyin, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's just the most... Incredible conversation and thank you so much oh, for your time. I'm glad. As this is the Great Woman Artist podcast, we do always ask our guests if there is a female artist from the past or present who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and oh, what would you say gosh. to them? That's a really hard Artists one. can be many different things. <sighs> you got me, man. There's so many. I really You could have a dinner party with loads of I was gonna say, can I have like a bunch of <laughs> yeah, them? Like Elizabeth Catlett. <gasps> Yes. Frida, just because she just seemed like she was crazy out there. Yeah. She was so wild and brave. Also, she would scare me, but I would like to have a drink with her. Would she scare a nine-year-old toy? Yeah, she might, (laughs) right? And then there's a documentary, actually, called The Ascent of Woman. Then the woman talked about the very first novel. It was like the tale of Genji, right? I want to meet the woman who wrote that. It was a courtesan in, in Japanese, but it's the very first novel in the whole world. It's a tale of Genji. And I want to talk to her. Like, how did you just, you just decided to write a novel and it's the yeah. first one in the history of the world. And she wasn't even a major figure in the court. She was just a minor courtesan and she wrote this book, this epic journey of this man. So I kind of want to talk to her and see like, you wrote the very first major novel in the whole world. Like what, did she know? Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to have her at the dinner. And I guess she's not technically an artist, but I just really, really want to talk to her as Octavia. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. That's it, yeah. Thank you so much, Tyler, <laughs> for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 43rd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Toyin Oji Odatola. This was such an amazing insight and I urge you all to visit Toyin's incredible exhibition, A Countervailing Theory at London's Barbican Centre, which is on view free of charge until the 24th of January 2021. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Ava Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave 
leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.